This morning, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, again, as we turn our attention to the Scriptures, we'll pick up in verse 8, just through verse 14 this morning, and a message I've entitled, Having a Healthy Balance. One of the questions that people often ask, because we are children of grace, our, our lives are marked by the grace of God, we understand that we cannot save ourselves, that works does not do that. It isn't a matter of us being something and being acceptable to God. It's a matter of us having received a gift and thereby being justified before a holy God. In other words, I've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. I didn't earn that standing. You see, as a child of God, then we have to wonder, well, what is the law for? Why is it still there? What is the Lord using that for? And as Paul has addressed to Timothy this danger that was in this early church, this young church, as he's passing along to that next generation of leader, that we need to be careful about false teaching, and that's the first thing he addresses. Now he goes on to remind us to have a healthy balance, you see, because even in that teaching we can become unbalanced. I can shift completely away from the law of God, and I can lean on the grace of God so much that I no longer can live a holy life. I can also at the same time go back to what the Jewish people did, which was trying to earn God's favor through works. And so here he kind of gives us a balance. He puts these things into perspective, because if we're going to raise up that next generation, if I'm going to teach these things to my children, if we're going to minister these things in our Sunday school programs, if we're going to have right doctrine, right doctrine should lead to right living. You must have the balance of those two things. No one can claim, and hear me well, No one can claim the grace of God without also claiming the holiness of God. No one is okay to live a life of sin having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We as God's children are now to live lives that look like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not free any longer to live after the dictates of our own flesh. And you see, just as much as we could focus in too much on the holiness of God and try and earn his favor, we could also focus in so much on the grace of God that we forget we're supposed to live holy lives. And so here we find some balance being delivered to us by the Apostle Paul as he writes to his young understudy, Timothy In verse 8, he goes on now to say, continuing in this amazing book, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That word translated lawfully can be translated also purposefully, intentionally. There are a number of words that fit here. It is also the word legitimately. In other words, the law of God in the life of a believer who's been saved by grace does have a legitimate purpose. But it's not the purpose that these Jewish false teachers made it out to be. You see, they so overemphasized the law of God that without the law of God being kept, you couldn't be saved. 
Paul wrote to the church at Rome that by the law, no man is justified. We, we can't earn our way to God. We can't be good enough to get there. We can't do a bunch of good things and thereby be well-pleasing. It will always be the grace of God that saves. But if the grace of God has saved us, there is still a legitimate place for the law of God. Paul would write that it is a schoolmaster or a tutor unto Christ. It provides a clear vision of God's character, his nature, standards that he has for his church. And so there is a legitimate purpose, but it's not to earn God's favor. He's giving us a balance. He's saying, you know what, there's a place for the law. And let us make sure that we keep God's holiness in view as the church. I think one of the great problems in the church today is as we move away from the holiness of God, we move towards the world. And as we move towards the world, we move away from the God, the God who saved us. And we begin to get people thinking that maybe God is no longer holy, that he does, in fact, accept all manner of sin. Family of God, God still hates sin. God hates it in me. He hates it in you. He hates it in the church. And it will keep unrepentant men from ever seeing the kingdom of God. God hasn't changed his standard. Now, as sure as I say that to you, many people will say, well, I'm lost then. No, grace is sufficient to save. But if you receive that grace that is sufficient, you will then be concerned about living a life that is pleasing to God. It is that simple. You cannot take one from the other. Neither stands alone. We, we must have that healthy balance. My sin should bother me. Things that are unpleasing to God should matter to me. A, a life that is pleasing to the Lord is one that looks like the things that are described in His Word. It doesn't look like the world. And He's going to go on and He's going to name a number of things, and I will tell you in advance that they represent a violation of all ten of the Ten Commandments. He says the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this. But the law is not made for a righteous person. You see, the law, when it was given, was given to the Jews, and they were not righteous before the Lord. They were given a system of laws. They were given a system of sacrifice. They were given a system of feasts. They were given all kinds of ordinances and regulations for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that was to show them that they could not, by their own work, make themselves holy. And you still can't do it. It's not possible. No amount of human righteousness can earn God's favor. Period. End of conversation. It can't be done. Law wasn't made for a righteous person. How are we righteous? You see, because if you're here this morning and you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have received his free gift of salvation, if you're walking in the grace of God, then by Christ's blood you've been declared righteous. The account has been wiped clean. 
The price has been paid for every sin you have committed, every sin you will commit, and it will get you home to heaven. But that righteousness is not of you, it's of him. You see, the law wasn't made for the righteous person, it was made for the unrighteous person. It has a purpose in our lives. It confronts, in other words, unrighteousness. It points the way. This is unpleasing to God. It is not a systematic list of do's and don'ts that if you don't do the negative things and you do do the positive things, that those things make you righteous. It makes you hopeless in ever keeping all of that. And we're going to see why here as as this list unfolds before us. Notice what it says. And now it goes on to list a a whole plethora of things that we'll see tie in directly to the Ten Commandments. The law wasn't made for a righteous person, but for the lawless. In other words, someone who doesn't follow the things of God. For the insubordinate, one who will not come under the authority of God. For the ungodly, one who does not worship the true and the living God. For sinners, those who transgress the things of God. Are you getting the picture? You you see, the law of God wasn't made for a person who's already under the grace of God. It was made for an unrighteous person so that they could look at what they do and go, man, I'm lost. That's the beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit in someone who's not yet saved as the Holy Spirit ministers to them but is not in them. Are going, you know, these things need to change. Here's God's standard. Here is what you're doing. For sinners, for the unholy, profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for those who have no consciousness of the goodness of God, the holiness of God, for manslayers. Goes on, fornicators. If that wasn't bad enough, sodomites. And yes, it does exactly mean what it says. For kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. Now notice how he wraps this up. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine... Do you understand what was just said? Anything that does not match up to the word of God, the gospel of truth, the things that God has revealed in his word to us, anything outside of that is sin. So anytime we transgress any part, that's why when someone comes to me and says, well, you know, I'm not a fornicator, I'm not an idolater, I'm not a homosexual, I don't drink, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. But you're prideful and you're bitter. Can I say to you that bitterness is a sin? Pride is a sin. Hate is a sin. Anger is a sin. Vanity is a sin. Covetousness is a sin. You see, from God's perspective... He puts all these things on one side of the equation and says it doesn't matter which part of this you transgress. You need my grace and my mercy to cover any of it or all of it. It's a balance. You see, because it says to the prideful person you need grace. 
And it says to the homosexual, you need grace. And it says to the angry person, you need grace and mercy. And it says to the drunkard, you need grace and mercy. You see the balance? You see the grace of God and the mercy of God are the only substances in all of the universe that can put us into a right relationship with a holy God who holds anger and bitterness and hate and envy and strife in the same place he holds homosexuality and drunkenness and fornication. They're all transgressions of his perfection. He says, make sure that you use the law correctly. Anything contrary to sound doctrine, according notice to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed into my trust. Paul says the things that I have learned from the Lord, the things that I teach of the Lord, the word of God, as it goes forth, those things become our standard. You see, these false teachers had this really wrong. And their idea was, okay, I'm going to be saved. I I believe that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in on the law. I want to be a great teacher of law. In essence, they wanted to be kind of holy bigwigs. They they really wanted to have a position to where when someone looked at them, well, you can tell, I don't do that. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, you guys are like whitewashed sepulchers. You look like a beautiful marble tomb that on the outside is adorned and covered with artwork and it's gorgeous, but inside it's still the rottenness of decaying flesh. You you see, we can become so focused on the external that we forget that God sees the internal. Amen? You know, there's so much of what goes on in our lives that happens between us and the Lord that's in our mind. That's in our spirit that happens in the things that we think. And I want to encourage you in this balance in these things of the Lord. You see, if we focus in as the church, now hear me well. If we focus in as the church on what we are doing that is righteous. Then we take away the hope of the person who can't do those things. Maybe they're caught up in a life of sin. And when we focus in on keeping the law, we focus in too much on that personal holiness and we don't give them the hope of the grace of God and the mercy of God, then we have misused the law. You see, we have then told them that in essence, we're okay. But you, because of the things you do, maybe you're outside of the grace of God. Family of God, no one, no one, no one is outside of the grace of God. Now, not all will come. It requires repentance. It requires forsaking a life of sin. As I shared with you already, no one can claim the promises of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God and still walk in sin. No one can do that. Not me, not you. Not anyone. But there is grace that's sufficient for our failures. We need to make sure that we leave people hopeful about where they are. Because I wonder how many people have not come to Christ because the church has been responsible for such a legalistic stance on sin 
that that person does not believe there's any hope that they can ever be forgiven. That's why Paul writes this letter. He's going to go on in verse 15 and call himself the chief of sinners. You know why? Because he remembers from whence he came. He remembers what his life was like before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He remembered what it was that he was saved from. He remembers his life of flesh. And so God's law is important, but we must use it correctly. It's not to be a weapon. It's not to be something we drag out to beat people up with. It should be a reminder of God's standards to us. It should be that tutor, that schoolmaster that Paul called it. It should be something we look at and go, that is exactly how God wants me to live. And we should strive to live that way every day. But that is not how you got saved. And it doesn't make you more saved. And it won't keep you. It is always the grace of God and is always the mercy of God that keeps us. God's law shows us direction. It, it offers that direction we should go, but it does not offer justification. It doesn't take care of the sin problem. It kind of shows us what's wrong, but it doesn't fix us. Family, it's like this. It's like you go to the doctor. The doctor says, well, I see all of your symptoms. You've got this, 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 and this. I believe you have pneumonia. Okay? That is a prescription. But you have to also go get the medication and take it in order to be well. Amen? The law can tell you what's wrong, but the law can't fix you. The law can give you, in other words, a diagnosis, but it's incapable of fixing the problem. There are people who go and they hear the things that they need to hear, but they never do anything with them. They never receive the grace of God. They never believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and consequently are not saved. And therefore, they are, as they were, very terminally ill, and they know what's wrong, but they do not do what they need to do to get well. That's the place the law has. The law points towards that sickness. It points towards that disease of sin that surely will kill all. As Paul said to the church at Ephesus, for we were dead in our trespasses and sin. I was dead without the grace of God. The law guards us from sin by giving us the standards of behavior. And yet at the same time, it doesn't fix a thing. And quite frankly, I love the fact that the law can't fix a thing. And I, I believe that as we look at this passage, you can see why it's written the way it's written. Because each one of us have certain amounts of strengths to withstand things in certain areas of our life. Amen? And probably some of you in here, you're not remotely tempted to go do drugs or drink. There are probably some of you who are not tempted to sexual sin. There are some of you that are not tempted to greed. There are some of you not tempted to anger. But when you compile this giant list that's declared in Scripture, you're going to find something that you are tempted in. You're going to find some place that your life is very open to that particular temptation. I've met all kinds of people that are completely free from multiple areas of sin, but when you talk to them about their attitude, they're bitter. They're hateful. They're spiteful. 
Matter of fact, they would do evil if given the opportunity. You see, each of us in our own way before the law finds ourselves hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. Completely unable to save ourselves. That human effort won't ever get it done. Now, I grew up in a denominational church, in the Baptist church, all three flavors of it. American, Southern, and Independent. And I am grateful and thankful. I love my Baptist brothers and sisters. But I went to a very legalistic Southern Baptist church. And I was absolutely convinced I was going to hell because I went swimming with girls. I mean, I had a youth pastor. Well, you went went in the pool with a girl? And I'm thinking, yeah. Don't want to be in there with you. (laughs) I was 11 years old. You see, we can focus in on one area of life and we can pick out our pet sins and our pet peeves and those things. Well, if you do that, you're really lost. Family of God, you are just as lost as a bitter person as you are as an adulterer. Both will keep you from the kingdom of heaven apart from the grace of God being applied by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is that simple. Nobody's going to ever argue their way into heaven. Well, I didn't do any of the big ten. You know, you get there, and I don't know if it's Peter or who's at the gate. It's probably Jesus. You're, you're not going to get there. Well, you know, I was perfect on the Ten I was right down the line, the Ten Commandments. I kept those. You know, those, other minor, those are just minor ones, right, God? No. His standard is utter holiness and perfection. Now, if there's anybody in here that can keep utter holiness and perfection, please let me know. I want to know what it is, what kind of water you have come out of your tap or what you eat or something, because I've never met a perfect person yet in my entire life. Matter of fact, I can tell you I haven't even gotten close. You know, I've had dinner with Mike Huckabee. I've sat around and talked to Tony Perkins and James Dobson and Chuck Smith and... Franklin Graham, I've met, they'll all tell you the same thing, going to heaven by grace. You you, you see, the only thing that will cure our problem is the grace of God. But that doesn't erase the standard. The standard remains. Because now I can look at it, man, I need the grace of God, because in my mind I still get upset with Flatlanders. (laughs) Amen? You could be, you could think, you could think wrongly about those things, could you not? Well, you know, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, and, you know, like, well, I hate Flatlanders, but you know, that's okay. After, God doesn't even like them. We think, we laugh, and, and I want you to laugh. I want you to see the humor in this, because this is how hopelessly lost we are without the grace of God. It's exactly the point I'm trying to drive home to you. Without the grace of God, we are hopelessly lost. We we could never keep that standard. We, We would fail and fall short of the glory of God, exactly as Scripture declares we would. 
I love what Andrew Murray said on this, on this particular passage. He said, the preaching of the law does not make us more sinful, but it reveals to us the sins which before we could not discern in our flesh. Just as the sun shining on some filthy pigsty does not make it more filthy, but only makes manifest the ugliness contained therein. That's all it does. The pigsty is the pigsty. The problem's the problem. But boy, you turn the light on it, you're like, oh, man, that's ugly. You see, when the light of God's Word shines in our lives, oh, man, that's ugly. Man, that's bitter. That's hurtful. I'm unloving. Do you realize that being unloving is sinful? Do you realize that being unkind is sinful? You realize that walking past a need that someone has and you have a way to meet it is sinful. Do you understand what I'm saying now? There are so many things that we would overlook because they're not in that big list or they're not high on that priority that when we look at the holiness of God, we go, oh, man, I fell short again. What can cure it? Only the love of God expressed by His grace. The law doesn't exist for the innocent. It simply exists for the lawbreakers. So the lawbreakers can go, I'm a lawbreaker. And it keeps doing that, family of God. That's what happens to me now. It's what happens to you now. I still recognize that I am still a sinner, just as Paul will go on to say. But I'm a sinner who's now saved by grace. I'm a sinner who now has an answer for that problem, and has received the antidote. You see, I went to the doctor, Jesus, and said, man, I'm sick. I am ill. The law tells me it's a book of symptoms. I have here my book. (laughs) I've got that. Yep, got that too. You ever notice how when you go to the doctor, the first thing, well, how do you feel? Is that the dumbest question? Terrible. Why do you think I'm here? But then they ask all those other questions and they do a few tests. You know why? They want to find out what's actually wrong with you. Can I tell you that there's only one cure for everything that's in here? There's only one. It's salvation by grace through faith. That's it. In that, all of these things can be dealt with. Apart from that, none of these things can be dealt with. So the law, rightly used, reminds us that we need the grace of God. Exodus chapter 20 is the background of this. And of course, it's the Ten Commandments. And it says, you, very first thing, and I want you to notice this. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you know how hard that is to keep? Let me prove it to you. Because the context is this. That in which you invest your time, your individual talents, in other words, all the things that you are, and your treasure, in other words, your financial wealth resources, that where you invest those three things 
is who you worship. That's what Scripture declares. We give of who we are fully to whom we worship. Can I tell you that people worship ATVs? They worship motorhomes. They worship golf. They worship softball. They worship sex. They worship money. They worship education. They worship other people's power. They worship politics. They worship the news. They worship all kinds of things. So to some degree, each of us has a little competing God someplace that from time to time we're like, well, I'll go worship over there. I personally never make it past the first commandment. Never. I've always got some little thing that's competing in the back of my mind, and I'm not trying to say I'm constantly walking around in sin, worshiping another god. I don't have idols in our house or any of those things. But I can tell you there are times when I really love fishing. And I probably spend too much money on lures. And I put new line on my reels when I don't need to. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I get all worked up. It's like, Lord, I get to go fishing and I kind of forget to maybe do some things that I'm supposed to be doing. One could say for a moment I was worshiping another god. Now, it's not necessarily my heart's intent, but I can tell you what my actions would dictate. And probably each of you can pick something from your own life very quickly and very easily and go, yep, know what that's about. It's it's like the day after Thanksgiving sales. (laughs) And yes, ladies, I'm picking on you. I've already nailed the guys. No, but we can all think of things. It's like your family's over and we're celebrating the goodness of the Lord and you spend the whole day looking at the Black Friday sales flyers. You're not thinking about how good God was. You think about, wow, that's 50% off. We all have areas of our lives that if we care to examine them according to the law of God, we can say, you know what, I'm not quite there yet. Praise God for mercy. Amen? Now remember the difference between grace, which is His unmerited favor, and mercy, which is you do not receive what you have earned. Two very different things that are extremely complementary. The unmerited favor, the grace of God, Christ's riches given to you by His own precious blood. In other words, you have gotten something that you do not deserve. But mercy is you don't get what you do deserve. Praise God for the mercy of God. Because you know what? Every one of us has those thoughts going through our heads that if it were up to the law of God, they would cause you to perish eternally. Every one of us. Have that little moment of weakness where you think something you shouldn't think. That moment of weakness where you do something you shouldn't do. Are you not thankful that it's all based on His grace and His mercy and not on the law? But the law still stands. And the reason the law stands is you can look at the law and go, I can't make it on my own. 
No matter how hard I try, I still have some areas of weakness and failure. And praise God, as you mature in Christ, those areas of weakness and failure get further and further apart, and they get less and less prevalent. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. But perfection on this earth, not till we go home to be with Jesus. Better, yes. Perfect, no. That's the life of a believer. I am far more holy than I used to be at some, at some level, at the human level. I do fewer things wrong, but I'm still not able to save myself. You understand what I'm saying? You, you see, I am better at not sinning, but I'm still not perfect. And so these things are laid out, and I want you to notice what they are. The first four things, lawbreakers, <coughs> rebels, godlessness and sinful and holy and profane, those basically are against the first four commandments. There, there are responsibilities to God. Not going to carve any graven idols. I'm not going to worship any other foreign gods. There are responsibilities to God. So the first of these things says, no, I can't even do that very well. The second group here, the next, represents the, the other six commandments. So he talks about killing your father and mother. In other words, those are the relationships that we have with other people here on this earth. He says, so you may be okay with the relationship with God, but chances are you're probably going to fail at the relationships with people on earth. You may be not okay with people on earth, but maybe you're okay with your relationship with God. And so what he's saying and pointing towards is you can't do it on your own. And so he names all these things. And I want you to notice how he breaks these things down. Just so that we don't misunderstand what was being driven home here, is some of these words that are used are, are all inclusive of several different flavors of sin, if you will. I like to sometimes just look at sin Almost like 31 flavors, you know, you go there and they don't, by the way, they don't have 31 flavors. It's usually like 27. They're liars. I count them. It's because I'm prideful and arrogant. But other than that, I'm fine with God. You know, you, you see, that's the point. We all look at things. Oh, well, you know, I'm not like that. We're just like the Pharisees to some degree. Praise God, I'm not like them. But all oh, the little things in my life, the little things in your life that you really know don't match up to God's standard. And so he uses some words here, adulterers and perverts and fornicators and sodomites. You realize he covers every flavor of sexual sin in using these words. So God really doesn't care whether you're a homosexual or whether you're an adulterer, whether you're viewing pornography or whether you're fornicating with your boyfriend or girlfriend. He's saying None of it is okay with me. Do you realize how our society has downplayed this particular aspect of human existence here on this earth? Well, you know, there are meaningful relationships. Not in God's eyes. So when your sons and your daughters are out making out in the backseat of a car someplace, it's not good. It's not just normal teenage behavior. It's sin. They're in sin. And it's the same sin that someone who's in a homosexual relationship is in. God doesn't approve of any of it. But see, we like to say that my sin isn't actually sin. 
Because, see, I'm not a homosexual. I mean, that's real sexual sin. Can I say to you that, from God's perspective, he makes no differentiation. He calls them both sin. Homosexual, heterosexual, teenage angst, you call it what you want. It's all wrong. Period. And so Paul is drawing the conclusion here for us to see very clearly that the standard is God's holiness. It's not what we accept as society. How much divorce is okay with God? Zero. None. God hates divorce. And yet we have taken the stance that, well, certain types of divorce are okay. No, it's not okay. And I don't mean to condemn. And I'm not trying to even make that point. I'm trying to say that the grace that's sufficient for that person who's been divorced is the grace that's sufficient for that teenager in the back seat of a car that's expressing their sexuality way too early. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's important that we understand this. Because if we start making human guidelines as to what's acceptable to God, then we demean the purpose of his word. Because, see, he doesn't accept any of it. And grace is necessary for all of it. And praise God for his mercy in all of it. Amen? Now, as I've gotten older in the Lord, I am unbelievably grateful for his grace. But you know what I'm actually more thankful for in my old age is his mercy. His mercy. How many times I have failed the Lord. How many times you have failed the Lord? And what was his response? It wasn't damnation. It was, no, Jeff, remember what my law says? You can't be like that. His mercies are new every morning. Are you not thankful for his mercies? Hallelujah. You see, without his mercy, I'm dead. I'd still be dead. I need both sides. I need the grace. I need the mercy. I need the unmerited favor, and I need for him to look at the things that I've done and go, Oh, Jeff, what you deserve is this, but I'm not giving you that. I'm going to give you my love again. Hallelujah. You see, when we look at these things, this litany, if you will, this list, you see, what happens is without the Word of God... We lose that moral compass. We lose the direction. Whatever is contrary to sound doctrine is the way that Paul puts it. You see, that's why it's so important that the church be gracious to sinners. That is why it's so important that the church be gracious to sinners. Because we are still sinners. We're saved sinners. We are certainly saints, but we're still sinners saved by the grace of God. And we still receive the mercy of God. And I want to really encourage you, keep this close to your heart. Because it does a couple of things for us. Number one, it keeps us from spiritual pride. Which to me may be the most rotten disease in the church. 
lest I think I've arrived or you think you've arrived. Let us remember always that the only arrival we'll ever have is on the grace train. Amen? It's the only way we're getting there. It's the only thing that's going to bring me home is His grace. You see, I need to know what is right. I need to do what is right. But the implementation of it, the justification that comes from God's grace is on His side of the equation, not on mine. I'm not walking around going, you know, praise God, I I did 87% this week. Now, if you have kids in school, when your children bring home anything in the mid-80s and above, you're stoked, right? You're like, oh, great, B+, A-, minus. you're just like, yes! How many times do your kids bring home 100% on anything? It's pretty rare. And when it happens, you're like, oh, maybe they misgraded the test. Do you realize that human perfection is about as rare? Human perfection doesn't happen very often. Anybody else done good deeds with the wrong motivation? Mm, hate to admit it, but I have. I've gone on a couple early in my ministry experience. I went on a couple of missions trips because I thought I was supposed to go because I would bring something to the equation. Total wrong motivation. I wasn't going because I wanted to minister to anybody. I was going because I got to travel to Eastern Europe. I'm admitting to you. I'm I'm sharing with you. I'm going to do what we're going to do next, which is look at transparency. You you see, those things you could look at on the outside. Wow, he's on a missions trip. But with the wrong heart. Even good deeds become wrong. You see, that keeps us clinging to the grace of God. Keeps us relying on the mercy of God. You see, it's that belief in Christ Jesus that saves. And Paul, in essence, extols the mercy of God. Notice verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful You know what's really crazy is that word counted there. It's actually an accounting term, and it means put in its proper place. Paul was put in his proper place by Christ Jesus. God put him there. He didn't earn a place on the spreadsheet. He was put there correctly by the grace of God. Counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So when Paul went into the ministry, it wasn't because Paul spent so much time as a Pharisee and understood the Old Testament Scriptures. It wasn't simply because Paul had forsaken the killing of innocent people who were of the way, who were Christians. It wasn't because Paul simply made a 180 and now he's ready. It was the grace of God applied to Paul's life that put him in the ministry and then God did that work in him. putting me into ministry, although I was noticed this, formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but, circle that word, what did he obtain? Mercy. You know why? Because the things that he had done required his own life be forfeited. That was what the law said. 
The law said if you shed innocent blood, you're guilty. That blood is on your hands and you die yourself. That's what the law said. Do you see what Paul's getting at? He understood the law. He even said of himself, I've kept the law since an early age. But now he's admitting in keeping the law, I've condemned myself. The law would have demanded his own life for what he did. But what did he receive? Mercy. He didn't get what he had earned. He wasn't going to pay the ultimate price with his own life because Christ's life was forfeit for him. I obtained mercy because, notice this, and here's the secret, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Those things which we know, those things God holds us accountable to. And that is why when someone who doesn't know the Lord is engaged in sinful behavior, it is a very different circumstance than a child of God who knows what to do and does not do it. In essence, sin in the life of a believer is worse than sin in the life of an unbeliever. Do you understand what I said? We need to keep this in view, family of God, because we do know the truth. You have heard the truth. You understand what that truth is. And because of it, we need to do it. You see, we're no longer ignorant. We're not doing it in unbelief. I believe that God's word is true. I believe his standards are holy and righteous. I need to do it. That's why you have heard me say there is no such thing as someone who engages in any of these behaviors willingly and professes the name of Christ. You can't have it both ways. Somebody says, I am a homosexual Christian. I have to say you can't be both. You cannot profess to be a Christian and also at the same time know what God's word says and then say, I'm fine with God. You're not fine with God. But the same is true for the liar. The same is true for the adulterer. The same is true for the drunkard. The same is true for the bitter person, the hateful person, the spiteful person, the jealous person and the covetous person. And here's what happens, because we know what it says, and we want to do what God would like for us to do, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we forsake those things. That's why Paul goes on to write, as he writes to the Roman Christians, to the Galatian Christians, he says it's a matter of practice. Truly saved people do not practice sin. Stumble, yes. Practice, no. And there's a huge difference. Occasionally trip over, happens. Live in insolently, shaking your fist at God, you can't do it. The Holy Spirit's going to be convicting you. Struggle with, yes. Engage in without any remorse, never. That's where the law comes in. You see, the law tells me, God's Word says, that if I'm really redeemed, then my life's going to look like this, and I'm going to be concerned of these things. I'm going to care that I'm bitter. I'm going to care that I'm spiteful. I'm going to care that I don't like people. I am going to care that I'm a homosexual. I'm going to care that I'm a fornicator. I'm going to care about these things because God's Word says 
The law reminds me those are the things that I used to be before I got saved. They're not the things that I continue to be once I've received the grace and the mercy of God. I need to hate sin. God hates sin. And I need to live as I am the Lord's. And because of that, as we see these things working in our lives, God empowered Paul. God judged Paul worthy of those things. And remind yourselves that Paul wasn't perfect. It's not a matter of human perfection. It's a matter of understanding the standard. It's looking at it going, you know what? I need to change my ways. I need to live differently. I need to walk in the things of the Lord. I need to care about the things that I do. Do they match up to God's standards or not? It won't save me. It is a matter of the heart of someone who's received the grace of God. I'm not going to be saved because I'm less sinful. Do you understand? I'm going to be saved because I'm declared righteous. There is a huge difference between those two things. I can be less sinful by my flesh. I can simply, by human force of will and sheer power of willpower, well, I'm just not going to do that. That would make me less sinful. But it won't save me. God's grace saves. And then his mercy is applied. I love the fact that Paul doesn't exaggerate, you know, his wonderful past performance. You know, you would think, and that's one of the things I love about the writings of Paul, he never hid who he was. He, he never let people believe, well, you know, I'm just great. Not only was he not great, he named some of the things he used to be, a blasphemer. You know what that literally means? It means one who charges God. In other words, God, you're unfair. Your laws are not correct. You're dealing without any basis against me. Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. A violent man. He killed Christians. The whole book of Acts, which we've been studying for a few months now. Once you get past Acts chapter 9, especially where we are now, as we're in Acts chapters 22, 23, 24, 25, and you realize all these things that Paul had done. And he begins to use that actually as part of his testimony. Hey, I persecuted the people who were on the way. I, I tried to find them and kill them. You see, he, he thought he was doing the right thing. People who live the party lifestyle often think they're doing the right thing. People in bad relationships often think they're doing the right thing. Maybe they think they're doing the only thing that they can do. People who steal. I talked to a young man a number of years ago who'd just gotten out of prison. He, he shot his own parents. He thought he was doing the right thing. His dad came in and beat him one more time. He was worried, so he shot his parents. He didn't kill either one of them, but he shot them. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was doing the only thing he could do.
Acts chapter 26, verse 9 says, For I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Paul thought. Praise God for grace and mercy. Amen. God holds us accountable, and I love this promise. Because we act ignorantly in unbelief. He holds us accountable to what we do know, not what we don't know. He puts away the past. You know, some people can feel so guilt-ridden and so condemned that they feel as though they can never come to Christ. Can I share with you, that's not from the Lord. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The knowledge of the truth is the basis of that. And the truth of the matter is that Christ died on Calvary's cross to set men free and to handle what couldn't be handled with the law. To do what couldn't be done by keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. There's no such thing as a person who is outside of the ability of God's grace to save. Now, there are people who choose to dwell there. There are people who choose to go there. There will be a population in hell, and it will be significant. But not because God's grace is insufficient. Because man's sin is pervasive. Scripture declares to us that men love darkness more than they love the light. You see, God forgave Paul and went on to use him to effectively reach the Gentile nations of the world for the cause of the gospel. That's how big God's grace is. That's how amazing His mercy is. As we look at this passage and recognize the the standard, Because the standard's still there, family. Please keep it. Please hold in high esteem the law of God. Do your very best to do exactly what it says. And in those times when you feel as though you can't go on anymore, know that God's grace meets you in those places of challenge. That as we cry out to him and say, Lord, I can't do it. You're confessing with your mouth what he already knows. But he can do it and will. He is more than able and we through him are more than conquerors, the scripture declares. That's why this overwhelming example that Paul has sometimes can be kind of intimidating. You know, we look at it and go, gosh, you know, I'm I'm just not like that. I'm not there yet. God knows that. Lean on His grace. But hold the standard up high. Have a balance. Recognize it's His grace that saves and His mercy that's being applied, but also understand His standard is still a standard. That His holiness hasn't changed. That what he wants from us is an example to the world of who Jesus is, not who Jeff is. Not what some group or denomination is, but who Jesus is. 
By this all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love one for another. And that type of love transcends people's problems. It helps them get past those weaknesses that they have. It cares that people are hurting and not doing well. And as we hang on to those principles and as we practice them, we won't have holy hopelessness. We'll have hope in His holiness and thereby be able to be used as He wants to use us in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we pray that You would take now Your Word and just implant it into our hearts and our minds that we might not sin against You. Lord, give us that balance between Your holiness your beauty, your standards, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Lord, your hatred for sin, but your love for sinners. Lord, that you would just enable us, God, to live lives that are fruitful for your kingdom. And we pray that your standard would be our standards. And we pray that in those times of brokenness and weakness, that, Lord, you would meet us. That as you challenge us by your law, that you'd heal us by your grace and your mercy. That as you raise that banner high, that we would do all that we can to meet that standard, living holy lives acceptable to you, which is a reasonable service. We bless you, Father God. We thank you for this time this morning. We pray that you would use each of us, Lord, Touch those people around us who desperately need your truth. Lord, ignite your church to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.